Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. These days, we take for granted that algorithmic systems are always at work in our digital media interactions, constantly assessing us and distributing our attention. But what do we know about the motivations and assumptions of the people developing these systems? What do they regard as their own moral and political responsibilities? Today's episode features a discussion with Nick Siever, author of Computing Taste, Algorithms and the Makers of Music Recommendation, from the University of Chicago Press. Nick is an anthropologist who studies how people use technology to make sense of cultural things. His book is the product of ethnographic observation and conversations with developers working on music recommendation algorithms and other systems designed to understand and cater to user preferences. His research gives us a better understanding of the motivations of the executives and engineers designing systems to command our attention, which he considers to be, quote, a currency, a capacity, a filter, a spotlight, and a moral responsibility. Here's Nick. My name is Nick Siever. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology and director of the program in science, technology, and society at Tufts University, and I'm the author of Computing Taste, Algorithms and the Makers of Music Recommendation. Tell me a little bit about your research generally. So I'm an anthropologist who's primarily studied engineers, computer scientists, developers. This book, uh, Computing Taste, came out of my dissertation research uh, when I sort of trained to become an anthropologist. And my focus has really been on people with technical backgrounds, people trained as engineers, people who work to build software, other technological systems, and how they deal with problems that they and everybody else understand as cultural problems. So these are problems like How do we model taste in a computer? How do we distribute music to people online? How do we uh, represent complex cultural ideas in technical form? And I'm really interested in how people with technical backgrounds think about these kinds of problems, in part because the way that they think about these problems tends to be pretty influential uh, in how those problems get resolved or uh, exist in the present day world. You give a kind of, you know, canned history of music recommendation systems in the introduction, but you spend a bit of time in particular on a manifesto that was prepared by Beats, read aloud apparently by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Uh, what, what was that about going back to the launch of Beats? I, I'm not even sure what year that was, but what was that about and, and why did you start there? You know, I don't remember remember what year it was either. But yeah, I was doing fieldwork on this project. I was studying people who were building music recommender systems. And I was really interested in this problem of how they dealt with the differences between humans and machines, right? I think it's kind of a, a bit of widely shared common sense that humans are good at things like having taste and understanding music and having, you know, feelings and preferences and passions and computers are are not. Uh, and that comes, you know, a lot of critiques of these recommender systems uh, sort of presumes that. But what happened while I was doing this research was that there was this big announcement that there was going to be a new music streaming service and it was going to solve these problems that other streaming services had. Uh, it was going to be called Beats Music. It was sponsored, you know, by the Beats headphones brand. 
Uh, and how is it going to solve this problem? It was going to solve this problem by using all sorts of musical experts, mostly celebrities, to make decisions, to make playlists, uh, and to sort of fulfill the role of what most people think of as, as algorithms. Uh, and of course, the ads for it at the beginning were really pressing this idea that there was humans behind it. There's, I think actually to do a tie into our recent Super Bowl, there was a Super Bowl ad um, where with Ellen DeGeneres in it uh, for Beats Music. And part of the idea was that, you know, Ellen, among other celebrities, would curate her own favorite music for you. And that this was going to be better than algorithms because of humans. It's a little bit of a, of a vague promise. Um, but I thought it was really interesting because uh, it, it sort of put out into the world this like, particular vision of the difference between humans and machines. And then eventually, of course, once they released the platform, it turned out that they were not using only celebrities. There was all sorts of algorithmic recommendation happening on this platform. And it was sort of impossible to imagine a streaming service without some kind of algorithmic filtering, right? Like if Ellen's going to make a playlist for you, how are you going to find it? How are you going to know that that's the playlist that, that you want? And so it sort of represented the kind of tension and I wouldn't call it hypocrisy necessarily, but people dealing with this problem that there's a very strongly held belief that computers can't do anything with music and taste. Um, and yet these systems have to do something uh, to mediate between computers and taste. And that's kind of where the name of the book came about, which is, you know, computing taste, kind of a joke on accounting for taste, right? People say you can't do it. And yet there's these folks out there who make it their job and do it all the time. So you approach this book uh, as an algorithmic ethnographer on, on some level. Perhaps you'll tell us a little bit about what it means to be an algorithmic ethnographer. But it's also clear in the book, you know, you're spending a lot of time with people building these types of systems, startups, entrepreneurs, et cetera. Talk a little bit about the process for the book. We're treated to lots of interactions between yourself and, and product managers and heads of R&D at these types of maybe proto beats type companies? So I guess there's two ways to think about this. One is that as an anthropologist, I work in a field that studies people. And we take that in a very broad sense. And there's very little that unifies most anthropologists. One thing that tends to unify, at least cultural anthropologists, of which I'm one, um, is that we use ethnography as our method, which means that we go out and we try to sort of live among the people that we're interested in studying and write about it. That's about as much as, as, we'll as you can get anthropologists to agree on, and maybe not even that. Um, and so what that meant is when I wanted to do an ethnography of these sort of algorithmic systems of the people behind the algorithms, I had this kind of anthropological toolkit, right? I, I could go and talk to the people who are building these systems. I could stay with them. I could stay in their offices if I could get access to their offices uh, and try to figure out what's going on in these systems. So on the one hand, as an anthropologist, that's kind of my obligatory method. That's the way that I approach all of the problems that I approach as an anthropologist. But on the other hand, uh, there's this figure of the algorithm. And I think it's easy to forget that, you know, 10 years ago when I was working on this project at the beginning, people didn't talk about algorithms at all. Like we talk about algorithms a lot now, and it's easy to forget that this was not a thing that people talked about even 10 years ago. And uh, one of the ways that people started to talk about algorithms when we were starting to talk about them was as these inhuman mathematical things. You'll often hear people say things like an algorithm is basically a recipe, right? It turns inputs into outputs. It's kind of this abstract mathematical procedure. 
that just gets followed. Uh, and the problem with that definition of algorithm is that it's really lousy for making sense of how something like a recommender system works. As I try to show in the book, a recommender system is not really a simple algorithm in the sense of a, a sorting algorithm, right? Something that might help you unshuffle a deck of cards or that will put a list of numbers in order in the computer. What it really is, is a very complex software system that's full of people making decisions. And so this is something I've argued a lot in my in my writing, uh, is that we really ought to think about when the algorithm, when we talk about something like the Netflix algorithm or the Facebook algorithm or whatever, as not really an algorithm in that narrow, simple sense, um, but as a complex social and technical system. And if you want to understand how that system works, you're going to make a mistake if you say that it's because of some specifically algorithmic thing. Because at the end of the day, these algorithms work at the pleasure of people. If they start to do something weird uh, that nobody wants to have happen, those people will turn them off. Those people will change them. Those people will revert their edits. And so that person who has the capability of doing that is very important to understanding how that system works. Because anything that they don't want to have happen, um, they're going to change uh, the system to try to adjust. And so I make this argument in the book that we really ought to understand the cultural logics of the people working in these systems, not just the machine logics of the narrow part of these systems we might call the quote-unquote algorithm. In chapter one, you give us a kind of, well, what you call a cosmology of algorithmic recommendation. And when it comes to music, you talk about essentially this sort of assumption that is maybe driving a lot of the work around music recommendation, perhaps recommendation of all forms of content, which is just the idea that there's too much, there's too much music, uh, too many sources of it, too much new stuff coming over the transom, too much old stuff, of course, that we'll never get through this general sort of sense that people are overwhelmed by choice. Is that right? This is a very funny thing that happened to me when I started doing this research is I would ask people, why do we need this? Like, why are you building these systems? What are they for? And they always said the same thing to start. They would say, well, there's too much stuff out there. Like a recommender system exists to help you deal with overload. This is why they're here. And if you look back through the literature of people developing these systems, which goes back in their modern form to sort of the mid 1990s, everybody says this, it's all over the place. Uh, and I encountering that thought, yeah, that makes sense. That's how I feel. I feel like there's too much stuff. And sure, wouldn't it be nice if I had a computer to help me to help me sort of work through it? So it's all it's all over the place. But then I started to realize, you know, okay, well, what what kind of person experiences something like Spotify, for instance, which right now has, I think, something like 40 million songs in the catalog, experiences that as a kind of overwhelming problem, right? Something that like, oh, gosh, that's a problem. I need to solve that problem rather than as just like a thing that you could go into sometimes when you thought of some music you wanted and you would just search for something, right? Why, why does it feel overwhelming? Why does it feel like a, a, a problem rather than a resource? And I started thinking more critically about whether overload as I had felt it was like a necessary thing. And if you look at, there's actually a bunch of really interesting work that I cite in the book of, of the history of overload. So people writing these long histories that go back to you know, the early modern period, the advent of the printing press, sometimes even earlier. Um, and these historians find these funny examples of people saying, you know, oh my gosh, there are so many books in the library. The year is 1650 and scholars are really worried that they're going to have book overload. And it feels so quaint right now. And honestly, it feels quaint to read some of this stuff from the 90s where people say like, oh, we have so much email now. Can you believe it? And I just think, oh, just you wait, like <laughs> you, have, you have no idea. Um, but this realization that that kind of overload narrative exists in all sorts of settings, regardless of the 
objective quantity of stuff had me thinking about overload, not really as like a factual state of affairs, um, but as a myth. And in anthropology, we use the term myth sort of technically, uh, which is to say, I don't mean a lie. I don't mean just like a thing that people make up, but I mean it as a kind of story about the way the world works, right? So when people talk about overload, they're not really talking about like a specific condition that could be fixed, like as a historical condition that just happened at some point. Um, you can't fix overload uh, in these stories. Overload is always going to happen. Um, and the reason overload is always going to happen is because there's this idea about the nature of the universe that is that the universe is sort of overwhelming. It's overwhelming to exist in a world with horizons broader than your own. And wouldn't it be great if we had help? And, you know, I think it's a reasonable worldview to have. I think it's a worldview a lot of people have. It's a worldview that I have a lot of the time. But it's important because that's that justifies recommender systems, right? If you go to Facebook and you look on their help pages about like, what do you say about your algorithm? You can find them saying there, the reason we use a newsfeed algorithm is because if we showed you everything that happened that we could put here, it would be overwhelming and you wouldn't be able to deal with it. Um, that is the ultimate justification everywhere. The funny thing is, of course, Facebook is responsible for that, right? The idea that Facebook is going to show you like anytime someone cl clicks a button in the interface, they did that, right? It's it's not nature. Uh, so it's important to draw this overload story um, because it helps us question whether it's actually true in all of these settings. It's a very easy thing to appeal to, to make us think that recommender systems like really have to exist or have to exist in a particular way. And I think it's worth questioning um, when something feels that obvious. Whether they should exist or not, of course they do. And you chronicle the sort of history of their genesis and early engineering uh, taking us back to July 1994, Ringo, the first mm -hmm. music recommender system on through the Celestial Jukebox, uh, which I maybe for a moment confused with Alan Lomax's Global Jukebox. Tell us about Ringo. Tell us about the Celestial Jukebox. So what, where are we at right now, 30 years in? So the celestial jukebox is this funny term that sort of emerges in the 90s to talk about this hypothetical future, right? It's a name for arguably the condition we find ourselves in right now, which is when you can listen to most of the music that's ever been recorded in the world instantaneously wherever you are. And I think it's important to remember whenever we say that, right, there's a lot of music you cannot listen to. It's been recorded, but it's not in the catalog. It hasn't been recorded, right? There's sort of filtering that happens at every step here. But this is obviously a unique moment when you can listen to any of 40 million tracks whenever. And that's going to have some kind of cultural effects. But people are looking forward to this moment for a long time. Uh, and it seems like it's going to be great. A lot of the critical sort of media studies people in, in the academy are worried in the 90s primarily about copyright issues, actually, primarily about like what's going to happen about legal rights, uh, reproduction rights, all these kinds of things uh, that are involved in, in, in reproducing music. Uh, and as we know, maybe between the 90s and when we kind of have the full advent of streaming music as we know it now, there are a lot of copyright related uh, fumbles uh, that happen over that kind of 20 year period. So yeah, they, they were probably right to worry about that. But we're in this moment now where it feels like the Celestial Jukebox is real, but it feels like it wasn't so great. It feels like there's this kind of these problems that have that have emerged with it. And one of the problems, as a lot of the developers of recommender systems put it, and this is kind of to return to what I was just talking about, is this overload problem, this idea that it feels like it should be utopian, but there's this kind of issue. And overload, as I say in the book, is this kind of 
problem. It's like a ghost that haunts the fantasies of the information age, right? We have this vision of like, what if you had instant access to all the information everywhere, not just music, but everything. Oh gosh. The bad side of that is I have access to all of this. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to filter? How am I supposed to find what I want? Uh, And so Ringo, uh, as I talk about in the book, is basically the first music recommender system in the modern sense. They develop um, a version of what we now call collaborative filtering that they called social information filtering. And I I love reading about these old um, these old interfaces. So this is an email based uh, music recommender where they would basically, when you signed up, send you a list of artists that you could rate uh, on a numerical scale. You would send that list of ratings back. They would do a sort of standard set of statistical correlation measures to find other respondents who were very, very similar to you. You find artists that those people liked that you didn't rate or that you rated, you know, neutral and say, why don't you check this artist out, right? It's a very simple collaborative filter, as we would call it now, unless other people were starting to call it then. And yeah, that's kind of the origins. But the funny thing about Ringo is that it's aimed at real music enthusiasts, right? It's aimed at someone who wants to put in the work, who's willing to go through like a pretty long survey of artists and give them all these numerical ratings on a very, you know, fairly detailed scale compared to the thumbs up, thumbs down, we're sort of familiar with now. So it was a lot of work to get recommendations like that. Um, And it's worth remembering that this is at a moment when, what were you going to do with those recommendations? You were going to go to the record store and you were going to buy a CD probably, right? It wasn't a thing where you were going to go online and just like pop on a, a playlist of the greatest hits of whoever. You take us through the evolution of recommender systems, uh, the extent to which algorithms evolve uh, to be about captivating the listener, about persuading the listener. Um, I suppose in that kind of evolution, essentially, of recommender technologies, algorithms themselves from collaborative filtering onto, you know, whatever this latest generation of approaches uh, contains. But I find it interesting that by chapter three, folks are kind of going back to trying to understand the listener, trying to kind of get at that deep insight that perhaps is going to power the algorithm in a new way. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the way the reduction of people to kind of types or, uh, you know, different categories of types of listeners or attempts to kind of frame the listener uh, in ways that essentially would allow a recommender system to work. Yeah. So I can give you my, my, my sort of potted history of, of music recommendation from its origins so this sort of Ringo moment. And again, it's a lot of these systems are not just music focused um, because the nice thing about collaborative filtering uh, at this point in time is that it doesn't care what it's recommending, right? It's, you could, in that email, they could have sent you a list of hotels uh, and you could have rated hotels or jokes or movies. Uh, and actually one of the early recommender systems in this period was for jokes. Uh, it was called Jester uh, and it was a collaborative filter for jokes. Uh, it was a research system. Yeah. So what happens is you have this transition over the kind of subsequent 15 or so years from that mid 1990s moment where the ideal type of recommender systems really changes. Uh, So at the beginning, these music recommender systems, like I said, are aimed at enthusiasts. They're aimed at people who are really willing to put in work to try to discover new music. Uh, And there's kind of an assumption that the way a recommender system should work uh, is that it should predict what ratings you're going to give to something. Uh, And the more accurately it predicts your ratings and kind of everyone's ratings, uh, the better it is. 
So there's a lot of work on this. Netflix famously has a prize to improve their recommender algorithm uh, in the 2000s, oriented entirely around reducing this one error metric, which is basically compare one big spreadsheet of ratings to uh, one big spreadsheet of ratings predictions and say, okay, who got it the closest, right? That's kind of how it works. But what happens is that people start to say, well, you know, the problem with this is that we don't know that that is what people want, right? Like if it, if Netflix says, hey, you're going to like this movie five stars and I only liked it four stars or vice versa, does that matter, right? Is that like a, is that worth it? Is closing that gap effective? Um, and so people start doing studies of user satisfaction that try to figure it out in other ways. And they start to say, you know, these changes in predicting ratings, it's not really paying off. And conveniently for them around this time, they're also trying to get access to a new kind of data, to all this kind of streaming data, right? So now if you have streaming movies, Netflix can know things like, did you stop the movie partway through, which is a thing they couldn't know uh, when you had a DVD getting mailed to your house. Um, a, streaming, a streaming music platform, right, can know, did you listen to this all the way through? How often did you listen to this, right? There's all sorts of data they have, which they now start to treat as ratings. And this is the kind of recommender system I think anyone who's familiar with them today thinks of as being normal, right? This is what we use, right? implicit ratings, basically. If you listen to an artist a lot of times, that's basically a vote, uh, a bunch of votes for, for liking that artist. And so that transition from ratings that you could make explicitly to behavior that's interpreted as ratings also comes with a shift in who the target audience is. Uh, this idea that a recommender system for music may no longer be for like a music enthusiast, but it may be for the opposite of that. It may be for someone who really doesn't want to put in the work. And guess what? They don't have to now because they have, you know, all this implicit uh, data collection. Uh, and so one of the things I argue in the book is that behind a lot of what we see in this kind of rapacious data collection for purposes of personalization is this idea that what users want in general, listeners and music in particular, is to not touch anything, is to not interact with these systems and to sort of let the systems take care of things for themselves. Uh, so that that understanding of what listeners are like is really central to how these systems how these systems work. And so I think what's funny about this is if you look through the history of recommender systems, you see in the very beginning, um, the reason why people say collaborative filtering is a useful technique is because it's not like demographic profiling. This is the kind of early bete noir of recommenders. You say, you know, it used to be the case that you would get recommended things based on your race, your gender, your age. And isn't that terrible? It puts people into boxes. A recommender system might help you break out of those boxes by using, you know, what you say you like rather than what kind of person uh, these systems understand you to be. So they always have this problem though, which is that you try to get someone out of the box as they would say, you kind of put them in a new box, right? You kind of profile them again in a different in a different way. And then the next generation of, of developers says, you know what, we were kind of putting people into boxes uh, that way. Let's try to break people out of that box again. And so you have this, this sort of series of efforts to help people break out of old boxes by putting them into new kinds of boxes uh, and then just you know, rinse and repeat. Uh, and so now uh, when we get to this, this chapter three in the book, which is about sort of various methods to apprehend listeners through things like their contexts, uh, you know, are you at the gym? Are you at the office? Are you uh, riding a bicycle? Are you on a date? And so on. We really see a sort of new set of boxes that are aimed at getting people out of the old boxes, right? Maybe you don't like the same music all the time, but every time this happens, it's accompanied by more and more and more data collection, uh, which is something that I think a lot of people, maybe listeners of yours, might be particularly concerned with, right? We have this expanse of data collection all in the name of helping people break out of boxes. But 
chapter four, you're interested in a different kind of analysis, uh, analysis of the music itself, the sound itself, which you, you know, you say is, I, I suppose, a, a newer interest or a newer, newer focus, or perhaps uh, a focus that has been less of a focus in past uh, when it comes to music recommenders. Yeah, I think this is a surprise to a lot of people who uh, encounter the book or who have thought about music recommenders, because it seems to, I think, to a lot of people, very obvious that a music recommender system would involve some assessment of what the music sounds like, right? If I listen to this, you're going to recommend me something else because it sounds like that. That is, for most music recommender systems throughout history, not how they work. And like I was saying before, collaborative filtering, it could have been hotels, it could have been jokes, right? It's really just this intersection of users, items, and some kind of rating, um, which might be just, you know, plays, uh, like a play count. And so it doesn't have to know anything about how the music sounds. Uh, and so what I have this chapter about how, about how you know, it's in the middle of the book about how they deal with musical data. I had people reading the book in earlier drafts say, wait a minute, haven't we been talking about audio data this whole time? No, it's really not in these systems. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, one is that you know, any kind of data about content is just bigger than the data about interactions, right? So an MP3 is a lot more numbers than one number that says how many times you listen to something, right? Like there, it's just a lot more data to analyze. And so it's computationally challenging. So one of the things I talk about in that chapter, uh, based on some field work at a, at a technical music informatics conference, is how researchers try to reduce the many numbers that go into like a full listenable digital music file into something that sort of represents what they think of as the musical audio core of that of that track that you can't listen to, um, but that could be used by a computer to do things like model similarity but in, in sound. But it turns out that this is way harder uh, than people might think it is. It seems like it should be obvious, but if you try to run any of these audio similarity algorithms on music, you will find very bizarre things happen that to a human do not sound alike at all. Um, but to the machine listening uh, uh, system, somehow it does. I, I was actually served as a grader for this conference. So they had this task where they would make algorithms, different groups, research groups would make algorithms to sort of assess musical similarity. And they would ask members of the community to grade them. So they would, you would pull up this interface and it would show you one, you know, 30 second sample of a song and then give you a list of other ones that various algorithms had said were similar. And you had to listen to them and give them a score. And it was so interesting to try to listen like a computer and be like, what is the computer hearing in this? I have no idea. It's a very uncanny encounter with a kind of computer sensorium. Um, but yeah, musical audio data is, uh, nowadays is sometimes part of these systems because a lot of contemporary recommender systems are what we would call uh, ensembles. So they're not based on one single kind of data. They're based on lots of kind of data. So I, you know, I don't know anything concretely about, say, Spotify, for instance, but I would imagine that if you used different features of Spotify, different recommender systems within the Spotify platform, probably some of those will use audio data a little bit more than others. You know, maybe if you say, you know, make a radio station out of this song, it might be more likely to give you things that sound like that song, um, or they could, but it's basically just part of the mix. Uh, of this overall set of signals, which might get used sometimes for some listeners, for some music, um, but might not. And it's very hard to know uh, from the outside what the balance of those signals is. You take us through the major approaches to the way that these various music recommendation systems are evolving, but I want to kind of jump ahead a little bit and maybe talk about first some of your conclusions about what it is these people believe they're doing you know, in building these recommender systems, 
Um, and of course, you know, most of them are financially motivated, right? They believe that if they build better systems, uh, they'll either get more subscribers, sell more music, engage people more, perhaps to sell ads, whatever it might be. So there's, I suppose, always a kind of, almost always a profit motive that is somewhere baked into uh, even the most biggest kind of music fan uh, of these engineers. Um, so I want to kind of address that. And then I want to turn also to what you make of what's happening right now with sort of generative AI and all of these things that are emerging that are allowing people to generate music out of whole cloth. You know, these are systems that aren't recommenders um, <laughs> in the cla- in the you know most basic way of, of explaining what they're doing. Yet they're, of course, ultimately computing sounds and then delivering a product that is is based on prompts. Um, so I don't know, maybe we can take those in turn. So first question really, you know, what is it these people are doing? What do they think they're doing? What is their role? Where is that work headed? Yes, yeah, so this is an important question. And I think one of the things that sets my approach to this apart from a lot of especially recent ones uh, is that as an anthropologist, I have in some sense, a disciplinary obligation to be charitable to the people that I'm talking to, which means that I try to take them seriously as people who are, you know, trying to do something that makes sense. And my goal is largely not to excuse what they're doing, but to try to understand how what they're doing makes sense to them. Uh, This is different than a lot of other approaches, especially to the question of music recommendation, um, because I think a lot of critics take on fairly easily the idea that the people who build these systems are somehow like cultural ignoramuses, right? This idea like, oh, these are engineers. They don't understand what music is. Uh, They're coming from somewhere else and they're coming here to mess up our music. And I don't think that that's a very useful or or correct critique of what's going on in these systems, partly because the people who build these systems are, you know, motivated by what they see as a care for music. Like, yes, for sure. They want to make money in working in a company. But most of the people I talked to would say that they cared a lot about music, right? That they they had various kinds of musical backgrounds. They played in bands. They were DJs. They were avid music listeners. They really thought that what they were doing was good for music. And I think I can say that uh, it, this is not just a thing that they say in public for spin and they're secretly lying about it. Um, I think they like music, you know, as much as, as, much as the next guy. Um, now, that does not mean that everything they do is going to be right or good or have the consequences that that they wish it would have or that we wish it would have. That doesn't require us to think that they're doing a good job. Um, but if we see them as being sort of motivated by a certain kind of care for music, then we can kind of understand uh, a lot of the decisions that get made in, in the design of these systems. And one of those is, as I talk about later on in the book, uh, this kind of pastoral attitude, which is to say uh, they think about the music space as something that they care for. They think about music listeners as people that they are kind of tending to or trying to guide. Uh, and they understand their role as being someone who is not really making, you know, objective statements about what music is good or even about what music is, you know, necessarily similar to other music, right? They can't, there's no there's no scientific objective way to evaluate a recommender system. You can't say like, that was it. You solved it. That's the nuclear fusion of, of recommendation, right? There's no, like, there's no thing there that lets you know you did the right, the right, um, made the right decision. Uh, but the people who build these systems, I think are genuinely motivated by a sense that they kind of care for people and they're trying to help them. The counterpart to that, the other side of this is that, you know, they're a little worried about their level of control. Like, or do we have too much power, right? Are we gatekeepers, actually? We thought the gatekeepers were gone, but maybe we're a new kind of gatekeeper. And there's anxiety uh, about that, I think reasonably so, because I think they are 
to a certain extent, a new kind of a new kind of gatekeeper. But I think the people who build these systems are absolutely motivated by uh, a sense of care for music uh, in a very broad sense. And that does not always translate into good outcomes for musicians, um, for sure. When you get to the end of the book, you know, you find slightly some of the folks, you know, you've, you're talking to and observing, wondering whether they've done a good job or not, whether they've actually delivered on on some of their interests. Yeah. So the, the book ends in this funny spot where I, you know, I was done with research for a while. I finally managed to set up an interview with someone who had kind of eluded me for a long time. You know, I was a professor by then. I was working on the book. Uh, and I managed to talk to this guy who wouldn't talk to me for a long time. Uh, and he was, yeah, very ambivalent about, about the role. I think a lot of people have this kind of ambivalence, um, which is to say, you know, what were we doing? Like, what, if you look at the the world of music recommendation or any kind of personalization, you know, when I talked to him, um, but also just still just now, it does not look great, right? It looks like a kind of surveillance hellscape, which is, I think, a reasonable assessment of what's going on. And so part of what some of these folks are worth have been thinking when I catch up with them is like, what, what do we do? Like, what do we do in this space? Um, and there's a lot of ways to think about this. I think there's a lot of people who are doing really interesting work on this uh, in a frame sort of broader than mine, because my frame is really in this book, at least focused on how do the people who build these systems think? Uh, and I want to give a very strong and, and, and sort of balanced accounting of that so that it can be used in these broader discourses rather than, you know, telling you my thoughts about how I think centralization of these systems is bad and blah, blah, blah. Um, but in any case, I think one of the things that happened was that people were not ready to be as successful as they were. So a big, thing that's changed in recommender systems also since I started, right? I mentioned that, you know, a decade ago, nobody talked about algorithms. Also a decade ago, everybody thought that recommender systems didn't work, that they like were not very good, that they were just not very effective. They were kind of gimmicks. Not many people think about things like the iTunes genius, uh, which was a recommender system that Apple had in iTunes, which would make you recommendations from inside of your own MP3 library right before we had streaming. And then people are like, this doesn't really work. And I don't really care about this. And this is a gimmick. And it goes in the same spot as the like visualizer, right? The one that that plays for stoners to look at while they're listening to their records or whatever. It's just not a thing that we care about. And so what happens though, over the intervening time is this idea that, wait a minute, maybe these systems work again for some definition of working, which might include giving people music that they like. It might include influencing people more than we thought they did. And it's and that, that discourse changes to the point that now most of the critiques you will read of recommender systems assume that they work so well that they are dangerous, right? That they're so good at profiling you that they are causing harm. Um, I don't think we actually have to agree with that necessarily. I think there's a lot of reason to be skeptical of those critiques that assume that these systems are just like amazingly uh, you know, good at doing their jobs. But it's certainly the case that that people think of these systems as doing well now and that they have grown out of that little, you know, gimmick in the corner to encompass everything, right? So if you open up a music streaming service today, you will see a very large amount of algorithmically filtered stuff um, that is aimed at some personalized model of you. And I just think the calculus changes when everything is run through these systems uh, versus when they're kind of a thing you can dip into as like an interesting, hey, you want to see something else? Uh, right? That just really changes uh, what the what the effect of these systems uh, can be. And I think people weren't really ready uh, to, to succeed like that. I don't think that they were prepared. You already brought this up, but just want to talk about the implications of all this for the makers of music, for musicians. I mean, clearly, 
at the top level, many of the most famous performers are doing quite well. They're earning quite a lot off uh, both the sale of their music and also of, off of the performances and merchandising and the rest of that. But for you know many other musicians below that that tier, life's pretty tough. I don't know. What do you make of the interaction between the kind of mediation uh, or kind of tech platformization, I suppose, of of music, of which recommender systems is a big part, and the plight of musicians? Yeah, so there's a lot of parts to this question, right? So one of the, the things to keep in mind is that we talk about recommender systems as though they are synonymous with on-demand streaming services a lot um, because they feel so connected, right? They feel like they, they really go together. Um, but a lot of the problems that we see around things like compensation of artists and, and artists' ability to control kind of their image in these, in these platforms is not really a recommender system issue necessarily, right? I think recommender systems play into them, um, but I, I don't think that they're caused by recommender systems necessarily. Uh, certainly the amount that people get paid, they could get paid more uh, and the recommender system could have nothing to do with that. One thing that you'll see people worry about uh, in the field, and this is not to say that they're right, uh, is that is that you know are recommender systems showing, are they helping popular artists get more popular, or are they pushing people sort of down the popularity uh, uh, level? And there's a there's a, a joke that I would hear people say, which was you know the problem. Uh, it was called the Beatles problem, um, and the Beatles problem is that. Everybody's listened to the Beatles. Everybody likes the Beatles. Uh, and so the Beatles are a kind of node in this network of artists that like you could recommend, you know, say, I listen to the Beatles. Let's make a recommendation to you. Have you ever heard of John Lennon? Right. And people and and people are like, I, you know, it's not it's not a good recommendation. It's too popular. And obviously he's part of the Beatles. Uh, and so one pe thing people will try to do is, you know, adjust recommendations to kind of go down the popularity chain, right? To intentionally highlight less popular artists because those are the ones who could make use of it. And a lot of people, when they said they were invested in caring for music, said this, right? This was a way of getting people with smaller audiences, bigger audiences. The problem, of course, is that once these systems get involved in that, there's a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a Midas touch problem where when these systems pick some artist to sort of raise up to a broader level of popularity, they can kind of make that happen for that artist, but they can't make it happen for all artists. Uh, and so there's a worry here, right, of a kind of feedback loop or maybe too much control on the part of these systems that even when they're trying to do a good job by sort of elevating uh, the work of less popular artists, um, they might be harming other artists in, in the process. And it is worth keeping in mind that we don't want to hold these systems up against some kind of like non-existent golden age. You know, I don't want to let them off the hook either, but it's not like the, the media ecosystem immediately to prior to this one was one where musicians of all sorts were really making money and getting big audiences and, and whatever. So part of, I think, what's going on is this disillusionment with that celestial ju jukebox utopia that people kind of thought was coming, uh, which is that, you know, uh, there's still centralization, there's still artists getting more popular, there's still some worries that algorithms might be enhancing that rather than breaking it down. But at the end of the day, right, if you have enough data to know that your recommender system is recommending more popular artists and making them get more popular, then you have exactly the data you need to turn it around and to say that you should be recommending less popular artists, right? So you could retune these systems on purpose to go that direction. And then you come back to this cultural problem, which is, well, that what's the problem? The problem is the companies have not tuned them that way. They could, um, but they don't. Uh, and so it's not an algorithm thing in isolation. It's an algorithms in a cultural context problem. So you're putting this book out right at the moment where everyone's extremely excited about 
generative AI, synthetic media. You know, most of the hype right now is around images and text, but we know, of course, that video and music uh, and other audio are right behind in terms of both, you know, startups trying to offer solutions. A lot of it right now is really intended for almost like background music type implementations, things of that nature, but it'll get better and better, I assume. Is there a connection between all of the work that has been done to understand music and to uh, collect data and to advance the types of you know, algorithmic understanding of music uh, that you've chronicled here uh, and potentially this next wave of generative AI music solutions? What do you make of that interaction? Oh, it's such a can of worms. Yeah, so I think that on the one hand, uh, like you said, it seems like the sort of the low hanging fruit for this kind of generative music is going to be that kind of, you know, uh, background music, maybe not even the kind of background music, like for people, you know, listening while they work, but background music for like, you know, advertisements or, you know, low cost, you know, TV sync music, so the kind of stuff that, 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 you know, people don't want to pay money for, um, but that people, you know, musicians can make their make their living off of. Um, and so I think the first thing to, to think about in any of these contexts is kind of the labor question, like who who is benefiting from this and who is getting put out of a job by this? Um, I think that's a reasonable place to start thinking about these systems rather than like, oh, wow, isn't it incredible that they can make music that sort of sounds like this now. Um, the chapter in the book that's about musical data is in some ways a weird, like, in between precursor to this. So at the end of that chapter, I talk about someone who's using a, a deep learning system to try to identify musical genres from sounds. And that kind of research uh, is eventually the kind of research that gets sort of built into some of these generative models. So these like, models of musical audio that can recombine them in ways that make, you know, music-ish uh, uh, sounding stuff. But I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't think it's a good idea to have those kind of conversations without just thinking about the ways that these are used primarily uh, to kind of put people out of work and to sort of degrade the quality of living for people. So that's a big question to think about around, around generative music. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that there's a history of generative music as a kind of experimental music practice and as a, uh, as a fan of music and technology research, I have, for as long as I've been an academic, been really interested in generative music in this sort of experimental sense, not in the sense of like, oh, here's a system that can make a song that sounds like so-and-so in the style of so-and-so, but, you know, weird semi-computational rules for generating compositions that, you know, people can play, sort of like avant-garde generative music. And... I do kind of wonder what would happen if we steered these that direction. I'm not naive enough at this point to think like that's where this is going. I don't, I think it's primarily going to try to put the sort of, you know, session musicians out of jobs, but there is this kind of question of like, what happens with experimental generative music at this point? And there are people doing interesting work on this. People like, like Holly Herndon, uh, for instance, uh, is, is working on this as sort of a musician. And I know there are musicologists working on this from the sort of, you know, a, a great understanding of the history of musical labor uh, and people who are doing that kind of work. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up uh, in terms of effects on music is that one thing people ask me about a lot are the effects of recommender systems on musicians in terms of what kind of music they make. So we have this sense, which I think is correct, broadly speaking, that musical technologies change 
the nature of the music that gets made and right this ranges from like you know how long is one side of a vinyl record uh to you know uh, uh right now people will say you know oh you got to put the hook at the beginning of a song because that's what the algorithm likes and i think what's important about these new sets of discourses around the effects of recommenders on music uh, is that it's not like the one where we say, okay, well, you know, uh, we have a three minute pop song because of technological limitations. There's no direct access to the algorithm on the part of the people who are making these decisions. So when we say, oh, the algorithm means that all songs like are only hooks right now, we don't know what that means, right? That's what that is, is actually people making music deciding that this is what they want to do, right? There's a kind of blank step in the middle. They don't know what, uh, what how the algorithm works. Uh, and so there's there are many people doing work on this now. I think it's important to have empirical research on this because it's easy to sort of bloviate and imagine what the effects must be. Uh, but there are people out there now doing ethnographic research with musicians to say like, okay, well, how are you deciding? Like what kind of music you're making? And they're deciding based on folk models of how algorithms work. And those folk models are very influential they don't have to be right, right? You could have an absolutely incorrect idea about how the system works and that might change how you make music, right? If everybody has this idea that, oh, you know, it's a really good idea if you made music that only has, you know, the the, the hurdy-gurdy and uh, the zither in it uh, and they just started doing that, they could do that. that. That would be something that could happen. It's unlikely, but, you know, it wouldn't have to have anything to do with this system. So looking at how those dynamics sort of outside of the algorithm, but related to the algorithm, right? Ideas of the algorithm affect cultural production. I think it's really important because people look at those and have these very technologically determinist understandings of what's going on as though algorithms have somehow caused this in an unmediated way. And I think that's a kind of alienating and disempowering understanding of what algorithms can do and about what our roles can be in relation to them. I think it sort of puts us in a spot where it feels like we can't do anything. I recently heard this segment of the CBC radio show Q uh, where they interviewed Max Martin, uh, who's a producer hit maker behind a lot of the songs that you might know from Britney Spears, Adele, Taylor Swift, you know, others. And I, I was struck by the way he described the process that he goes through to kind of arrive at, you know, some of the novel sounds and twists in the music that he's made with those artists. And it struck me almost that, you know, he's in many ways, I don't know, somehow kind of inventing things that, that kind of like might frustrate or otherwise kind of confound a recommender system in some way. Like novelty is like, it's still really hard to do. You know, this person seemed to have an incredible grasp of how to introduce novelty into genre pop music, you know, that is known for, to some extent, being full of tropes and, you know, almost uh, recognizable uh, formats. And I don't, I don't know, I mean, is there, there's something to that? Or is there something that you think about when you think about um, now that we've kind of reduced so much of music to math or so much of even interest in music to a set of mathematics, that there's something I don't know, still, still like deeply mysterious about, you know, what surprises us when we hear it. I think humans continue to be very elusive. This is what makes, this is what makes this sort of interesting to, to talk about, right? So even as computer scientists or social scientists, for that matter, try to sort of model what humans do and how humans behave, 
we're very reactive, right? We can take the terms of any new technology and sort of turn them on their head, right? So it's easy to say, okay, well, here's, you know, here is a technology that you can use to play music back. It's the, the, the turntable. And then you have this sort of, you know, black vernacular technological creativity that turns it into uh, uh, DJing into a kind of musical performance, right? We say, oh, that people will use this in a different way than it's intended to be used. People will sort of re respond to what exists and change uh, what's going on. So I, I don't, I don't worry so much that these systems are going to like eradicate the possibility of novelty. I think it's something to keep an eye out for. And there are plenty of people who are worried about it, but I think humans are confusing and weird and stupid and smart and, and annoying and brilliant. And we will keep doing all sorts of stuff uh, in and around these systems. And so the real problem comes when, when people sort of assume that we won't uh, and assume that, that, you know, there's nothing we can do. Uh, in relation to these systems. So I'm, I'm a big fan of people sort of going in and trying to mess with the terms of these systems and trying to do, you know, do whatever they can to try to, you know, change what they're doing. But it is funny. I, Max Martin's a funny example, because if you want to look for this idea of like some sort of secret insidious force that's been affecting the shape of music for a long time, just Google Max Martin and go look at his Wikipedia page and see how many hit songs he's been responsible for. And you, you think, wait a minute, what's going like what's going on here? So on the one hand, like you can talk, you know, do an interview with Max Martin and hear about his techniques for making things new. On the other hand, you can look at how many years Max Martin has been responsible for so many top pop hits and say, is that novelty? That's like the same guy across across all of these across all of these things. Uh, so novelty is a, a weird a weird question, right? You can have a sort of algorithm for generating unexpected stuff, a sort of protocol you can follow to generate new ideas. I haven't heard this this interview. It sounds interesting though. But, you know, there's a different, you can jump up to a different scale uh, and say, you know, what, you know, is this new here, right? Is it new? Do we think of it's really new if it's like one person who's doing this kind of songwriting? How new do we want to get? How different do we want to get? Well, perhaps uh, at some point, someone will tease out the Max Martin variable. We'll figure out how all of that works. But uh, Nick Siever, author of Computing Taste, Algorithms, and the Makers of Music Recommendation from the University of Chicago Press. Thanks for talking to me about all this. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. Hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.